0: My name is Travis Folk, and I am both a wildlife biologist and a map maker, and I live in um, Charleston, South Carolina and Green Pond, South Carolina. New World Cartography, I guess, when did we start? We started maybe about 2014, 2015, and it was it was really an outgrowth of my profession and my graduate school research. I'm a wildlife biologist, and I um, I use GIS every day and have for over 20 years in both my research as a graduate student and then my full-time profession as a forester and wildlife biologist. And I, um, GIS maps are great. They're very accurate, very utilitarian. Um, but they really lack kind of the the passion of hand-drawn maps. Uh, my dad's company that I work in, Folk Land Management, have had had uh, some older foresters back in the 80s. 90s that would hand draw maps of the plantations we worked on. So our office has drawers and drawers of hand drawn maps and so that was really my first exposure growing up and then a desire to recreate those when I use GIS every day. I got all of my degrees in wildlife biology and forestry and my brother's a forester so we took over the land management company and um, yeah we manage um, large private plantations uh, for individuals. Some as big as multiple thousands of acres, some as small as a couple of dozen, so
1: everything in between. Did they ever commission one of your handmade maps of their property?
0: Yes, they they have. And back in the day when my dad first started Folkland management in the early '80s, he had one forester, Henry Sauls. He was quite the contradiction. He was an old, crusty former marine. Yet, at the same time, he was an incredible artist. And so they would draw, when, when you'd start working on a piece of property, you would draw what's called a timber-type map. And that's, you'd delineate all of the pine stands from the hardwood stands, uplands from wetlands, roads, all of those sorts of things, calculate acreages. So that way, if you needed some of those spatial metrics, you didn't have to redraw something by hand. You'd just go to that map and say, oh, that pine stand is 50 acres or 75 acres. And so, whenever they would draw those timber type maps, Henry would embellish one with sketches of um, cypress trees, wood ducks, you know, things like that, and give it to the owner and it would go to the big house. And um, so, a lot of the older clients that we've had for, you know, 30 plus years have still got some of those in their main house. And then, of course, here recently, because I do work on a lot of private properties. Uh, we've had a number of clients that have commissioned me with my New World Cartography hat on to produce a map of uh, of their property.
1: So, For these maps, would you mind giving me an overview of your process? Uh, for example, the one of Upland Game Birds. So we do two
0: types of maps. One, obviously, are commissions for clients. And um, that's an iterative process, both to help them understand what the process is so they can better participate. You know, people are passionate about family and land. And when it's family land, they're most passionate. And so when we do these commission maps, you know, we really want to memorialize, um, you know, the dock where somebody got engaged or the field where they shot their first really large deer or things like that. And so with those commission maps, beyond just delineating pine stands from um, hardwood stands, showing roads, showing the houses, We really want to memorialize these family connections to the land, so that's an awful lot of fun. But then the second type of map that we do, obviously, are the ones that we sell on our website. And that really is um, just limited to our imagination. Um, So I design all the maps, and I've got three artists that work with me to help help it come to fruition. Uh, Since I design all the maps, it's really what I'm most interested in, the oyster map. Living here in the Lowcountry, South Carolina, we have a lot of oysters, and I love them. Um, but I also enjoy oysters from Tomales Bay or Prince Edward Island, and I generally know that Tomales Bay is somewhere on the left coast, and Prince Edward Island is somewhere north of South Carolina. But I never was really quite sure where. You know, off the cuff, you'd gone into a restaurant and see Prince Edward Island. Yeah, it's north of the, north of Charleston, and I ran across several really good books about. Um, the history of oystering, the different types of oysters around the country. And as I read these books, I said, well, that's a perfect map. So surely if I wonder where Tamales Bay is, surely everybody else does that enjoys oysters. So I sat down with those books, some other resources, and collated a list of as many oyster types as I could fit on that map. Um, And so that was the genesis of that. The uh, the upland game birds map was... um, I did my PhD research on northern bobwhites, typically called quail. Um, and so that map was both uh, to show all of the different upland game birds, minus turkeys, um, as well as some of their major habitat types across the continent, continental U- U.S. Um, so that's what really fed into that. And then, of course, the bird dogs cross the bottom. Um, the Llewellyn in the bottom center is Llewellyn setter is my was my first bird dog back when I was in graduate school. His name was Aldo, and he uh, sadly I had him a long, long time ago. He has passed, but I I memorialized him on the bottom of that map because he
1: was one heck of a bird dog. And you collate all this information, and then are your artists the one who do the watercolors or the the lettering? How is it divvied up?
0: All of my artists do the ink work, and then there's two that do the coloration. And so we'll start with ink work on mylar, go through that process, and then get that mylar, uh, that ink work, transferred into uh, cotton rag watercolor paper then where we hand apply the, the coloration. Um, and there's some, you know, one artist is just really good at lettering. If you look at the map of Manhattan, uh, where it has all the streets and neighborhoods and parks in Manhattan. Um, that map is about, I think it's 14, 15 inches wide and 30 or so, 30 plus inches tall. And we had to draw the names of all the streets in Manhattan under magnified glass. And so my one artist loves to do that. And so that's what he does. And another one is really good at coloration. One thing we worked on early on was really making sure we got the right hues of blues, greens, yellows, oranges. You know, we didn't want it to have kind of a neon look, but real organic hues and color combinations. So when we first started years ago, we went through multiple iterations of just working out the language of color and how we're going to use that. Um, We've used colored pencil on just a couple of them. We we did one map called... that's the Revolutionary and Civil War fortifications around Charleston Harbor and um, uh, we did that both I'm from Charleston Charleston has a long history through those two um, um, that those two wars of course um, and you know growing up here you know of different old fortifications downtown or around the harbor so we again I went through older maps war diaries to, to collate all of that information and And also, I was um, reading about um, uh, a collection of maps the Virginia Historical Society had by this one uh, Union wartime cartographer during the Civil War, and all of his was with colored pencil. Because, of course, as you got closer to the front, you're trying to sketch out what's happening with different um, portions of the Army. You didn't have time for your watercolor to dry. And so uh, we decided to use colored pencil on the... uh, fortifications map. And we use that once in a blue moon, but by and large it's all watercolor. Are you the,
1: so you, are you the sole art director? Like, you start with, we're doing a map on oysters, I'm doing the research, I'm handing it off, and editing the other artists' work.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I, um, when when I came up with the idea for this, I I sadly have very little artistic talent. And um, I said, but you know, I know old maps, and, and there's only one personal belief that I will ascribe to everybody else. And that is, everybody loves a map. And I said, well, if everybody loves a map, surely there are folks desirous of traditional cartography of a modern landscape. And, of course, um, I didn't find too many folks doing it. So we started. Well, at about that same time, I became friends with a, um, an artist, classically trained artist in Charleston, Tony Waters. And um, he has been with me the longest period of time. And so, yeah, the way it goes is, whether it's a commissioned map or one of our maps, I'll say, okay, here's our map, uh, next map of X. And we want it to be this size, cover this area. We want this type of font. We want this type of symbology for the marsh or the uplands or mountains. We're going to add this. We're going to add that. So in an iterative fashion, we go through all of the details of ink work, And then the color palette for for coloration and how we want that color to look um so yeah so i I handle all of that i'm still a full-time wildlife biologist and forester so maps are during the day occasionally but more frequently at night once my my girls go to sleep or occasionally on the weekends so you know it's not a 40 hour a week endeavor Uh, tony too has another job so both of us are and my other artists as well so Working on things on the side, but, and obviously it depends on size. We've done a map as small as three by five for the front of a a beer can that a brewery here in Charleston was doing. did a map of Charleston, and we did a map that was nine feet tall by 14 feet wide, and so there's a lot of variation. But if you take kind of your average map that's somewhere ballpark, two feet by three feet, or give or take, maybe a little less, a little more, Decent amount of ink work, decent amount of coloration. Um, it can take a month, month and a half to go from kind of concept to um, pen first hitting the page to, like you say, final uh, final draft of the map. What was that fourteen foot wide map? Was that a commission? It was for a nonprofit called the Port Royal Sound Foundation, and Port Royal Sound. Is that big body of water between Beaufort and Hilton Head, South Carolina. And other than the Chesapeake Bay, it's one of the deepest sounds on the East Coast. Um, and so uh, it takes on, a, a salt water will push further inland in the Port Royal Sound. Uh, it will push further inland than it will on most other bays or sounds along the South Carolina-Georgia coast because it is so deep. So it affects the ecology of the landscape much further inland. Than let's say the harbor around Charleston or Savannah or places like that, and they have a, a they have their their main headquarters as well as what they call the Maritime Center where they have different uh, exhibits about different ecological and historical features of the Sound, and they had one big wall and they said, "We want to map that covers Savannah to Charleston." I said, "Okay, how big do you want it to be?" They said, "Well, big as the wall." <laughs> so um, we. The, the wall was a little bit bigger than that, but yeah, it was nine feet by fourteen feet. We we ended up doing that one in thirty three inch wide strips and then edge matching those together.
1: Tony Waters wasn't up on the ladder.
0: <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Uh, it
1: would have been the Michelangelo of Poor Royal.
0: <laughs> no, no But it was that one was a big one. That one. and in fact when I first met with them um, they said, Well, can you do this? And I reflexively said, Oh, sure, of course we can. Then when I left, I thought to myself, Uh oh, have I bitten off something just a little bit too big for me? <laughs> so um took a little bit of scratching my head to figure out the process and how we could do it. But again, the process was no different
1: than what we normally do, it just was on a much larger scale. So. For your artists, do they work large and then reduce? Like if I'm holding a print that I opened. From you guys, is that was it painted at that size or painted at that double scale and then uh, reduced in the reproduction? I have resisted
0: that uh, because I feel that when you design a map, um, you really need to know the final scale that somebody will interact with that map. That, of course, influences font size, it influences density of information per unit area on the map, um, as well as just the overall composition. The size that you receive is the size at which we, uh, we, we,
1: we, we developed the map. For your private commissions, do the landowners give you a punch list of what they want to see? What's the process there?
0: You know, it's interesting because if somebody finds me,
1: it's typically because
0: they have a real passion for their property or a passion for a particular area, but more, more commonly, it's a piece of private property. Um, and they've thought about wanting a map, they just weren't sure how to do it. And then when they find me, they say, oh, great, I've got a place in so-and-so, it's been in their family for a long time, or I just bought it, or, or whatever the case might be, I really want to draw a map. To which, early on, I would my response would be, great, what do you want in your map? And more times than not, I would get, uh, I don't know, I've known I've wanted a map, but now I'm not sure what I want in it. And developing a map for yourself is not something that most folks have experience in. They know they want a map, but it, when it comes to the details and the type of font, the color palette, all of those sorts of things, it can be difficult. Um, you know they might not know they might not know how to begin to think about it. They know they want it. So um, that's really the fun part of what we do is we get to Sit down with them and say, okay, well, tell me, tell me about your property. If it's close enough, then I'll go visit it. And we'll ride around. And I'll take notes. And I'll begin to come up with um, kind of a rough mock-up. Okay, it's going to be this size. We'll have some sketches of quail and bird dogs because you love to bird hunt. Or we'll have ducks or we'll have this or that. So it's really a fun process. Before we even start the actual map work, it's a back and forth between me and the landowner and the client to really help me to understand what it is they're most passionate about and help give them different options. So, you know, we've done enough maps now that just for the things like font type and um, north arrow types and color palette, now send them some some thumbnails of different maps, say, okay, here are a couple of different types of fonts. What do you like? Or here are a range of color palettes. What do you like? What do you not like? So it's kind of a back and forth process to kind of lead them to get them to tell me I like this, I don't like that, and then that informs once I sit down with one of my artists to make it all come together. I say, okay, we've got to have this, this, and this, but not that, that, and that. Uh, we've done enough maps now. I've got enough of a portfolio that I can do that. But occasionally, um, well, I've got one client now that's very interested in a a very... Sparse map. They want it very white, but they want some detail, and so we're doing some preliminary sketches just to try and feel them out of exactly what it is they want. Um, And so we're just doing some some of our own sketches um, to 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 give them a range of options. So actually, we've already been through two rounds of sketches with them, and so we're pretty close to understanding the aesthetic that they're looking for. So you know, it's not like it's ordering a suit or a dress or something like that. Hey, I like this fabric, I like cotton, I don't like cotton, or, you know, those sorts of things that everybody has some familiarity with. Not everybody orders custom-made maps. And so you need to build in their mind what is the language, what are the range range of options that they could pick from. And once you help them understand that, then you can kind of begin to narrow in on what they like, what they don't like.
1: Yeah, it is a, a novelty for almost everyone. Yeah. I can commission a map? Someone can do that yeah. for
0: me? Yeah, uh, now what do I do? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> you got to give them the menu. Exactly.
0: Yeah, very good. That's a great way to put it. Got to give them the
1: menu. Did you do your PhD in South Carolina around the, like the, sort of the quail that you've seen growing up? No,
0: so I'm in a place called the Low Country, which is very, hence the name, very wet portion of the world. Um, I did my undergraduate at the forestry school at the University of Georgia, and then I did my master's and my Ph.D. at the forestry school at Auburn University, and my Ph.D. study site was in South Alabama. Worked on the Conecuh National Forest, um, essentially if you go from Pensacola kind of due north across the Alabama line, I was right there. That's a range of longleaf pine, kind of goes from coastal Virginia around to coast to eastern Texas. And I was kind of in the heart of longleaf pine range, working on quail. For three years straight, year-round, we attached radio transmitters to quail. We would trap them, attach radios, and then had a a little army of technicians that would help me. And we would, every day, seven days a week, 12 months out of the year, we would track those quail so that we could do several things. One is we could track daily movement. Where did they move over a 24-hour period? Um, and how their movement might vary, um, uh, summer to winter, um, breeding season to non-breeding season. We can then obviously estimate survival. Uh, the the radio transmitter, if it's alive and active, has a certain tone. If it's sat still for five or six hours, has a different tone. That allows us to then estimate daily survival rates. And then of course, when they begin to nest, they're always in one spot, right next to a clump of wire you can locate the nest, estimate nest nest survival, number of chicks. All of those are quantitative metrics. You can estimate dispersal rates, survival rates, reproductive rates. All of those are the quantitative metrics that then go into a population model. So, all those I put into a population model so that I could ask questions like, uh, and this longleaf pine is a very pyrogenic landscape. An average fire frequencies are every two to three years one of the most pyrogenic places in the world. And I could ask, say, well, what happens to survival rate one, two, three years after a fire? Or well, what if the fire happens in January versus June? Um, so you can begin to ask um, forest man- how forest management scenarios might influence the demography of quail and ultimately the overall population growth rate. The, the biggest crux was what's called dormant season fire kind of December, January, February versus growing season fire, which is April, May, June. By July, humidities have gotten so high, things just don't burn. And historically, um, uh, folks, uh, since the late 19th, early 20th century, when a lot of the plantations in the South started to shift over to Northern owners, their second, third generation of wealth from the Industrial Revolution, train travel was uh, fairly good. They could leave Greenwich, Connecticut, New York, Chicago, and come south or you know places north and come south for the winter. Well, they had a preference to burn um, prior to the growing season, and of course, the general theory being, well, quail and turkeys nest in the spring and summer. So why would you burn then? Then and destroy those nests? Well, if you look back over. Um, um, Uh, a much longer timescale before colonial impact to the forest dynamics of the eastern United States, the natural timing of fire was May or June. It was when the atmosphere began to warm up, you'd have lightning strike, but there wasn't quite enough humidity in the air for rain to follow. So you'd have these lightning-ignited fires that would just run for miles and miles across an unbroken landscape until it ran into a swamp or a, or a river or something like that. So you might think, well, you know, surely it's not that big of a difference. But in fact, when you burn in December, January, February, it has a huge impact on the botanical composition of the forest as compared to burning in May and June, which is when it naturally burns. When you burn in the wintertime, you get a more shrubby, woody, uh, composition, whereas when you burn in the warmer seasons, you get a more grassy composition. And indeed, burning in the growing season has a more positive influence on the population growth rate than does burning during the dormant season. So the National Forest had funded my, as well as Alabama DNR, funded my research to try and answer that question, because they had all these quail hunters that, saying, Whoa, 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 Conecuh National Forest. You cannot burn in May and June. You're killing all the small quail and all the small turkeys. And in fact, you do burn up some nests. But at a population level, burning during that time of the year over multiple years has a, has a more positive influence over the population growth rate than the negative impact of burning up a handful of
1: nests here or there. So that's what that was the real focus of the dissertation. Oh, wow. So on nets that burning in the more pre-contact style of May-June is better for seeing a bunch of quail and Turkey than burning December. Exactly,
0: yeah. And it's counterintuitive because you see a nest there, fire goes through, nest is destroyed. And and that's one difficult thing, you know, from a scientific perspective, when you talk about wildlife, you're talking about a population and not an individual instance. Yeah, I might see an individual nest be destroyed, but until I see population level impact you can't really evaluate it and that's what these guys were not able to see i mean they it's hard to see unless you've got you know thousands of dollars with the radio transmitters and technicians to deploy and go
1: figure that out so just to get back to mapping if you had a particularly challenging project you already mentioned the the 14 foot wide uh one but anything else come up that you thought huh how do we do that from a design
0: standpoint, there was one that I, I desperately wanted to hit the mark, and I just never did. And we and the project was, was, well, actually, the bigger project was canceled. It was a hotel in Charleston. The designer had this real 1920s Gatsby-style design aesthetic for the entire um, hotel. And of course, I had a bar and a restaurant, little speakeasy sort of thing. And they wanted a map of Charleston, but it within this very, uh, you know, silver sleek nineteen twenties aesthetic. And I was so excited, and I just didn't. I said, I'd love to do that, but let me think about how to do it. And we went back and forth and, and really tried to figure it out intellectually, and we we just never did. The the hotel ended up not getting built, so it all came to me. To moot, but it still intellectually would have been fun to have figured out, okay, then this particular design aesthetic that is different from whatever of our traditional cartographic approach, how do you do it? And uh I still think about that map occasionally wondering, how do you do it? You know, so yeah, we've had, you know, things like that. Um, but so yeah, I'd I'd say that's really kind of the one one thing I've struggled with is trying to do maps outside of our standard, kind of traditional cartographic style. Um, Always up for a challenge.
1: Well, that's interesting. A lot of cartographers like to stay in their wheelhouse. Oh, well, I mean, I think we're fairly good at what we do, but I've always up for a challenge. So,
0: (laughs) not saying I can accomplish it, but I'll sure give it a shot.
1: Does New World Cartography have any thousand-yard long-term projects? Like, oh, I'd love to devote a year to this, something, you know, real hard or novel.
0: I've got two or three maps in varying states of design and readiness to to make come to life. And so, you know, you always, as somebody that yates and um, you always wonder, like, oh, am I going to run out of ideas? <laughs> so I guess the Thousand Yard Challenge is, You know, some of our maps are not all that dynamic. Maps of the states. I mean, they're great. I mean, I love the state of South Carolina. My family's been here for generations. But those aren't nearly as dynamic and information-filled as, for example, the oyster map, which has 160, 170-odd varieties of oysters on it. And so you always wonder, you know, can I continue to make these very creative, interesting And to be quite honest, marketable maps that other people are interested in as well. Um, Or am I kind of a one-hit wonder? And I had a couple of really good maps, and then just can't really think of anything else interesting and engaging to the public. So um, I'd say that's it, you know, just trying to um, make sure that my level of creativity is, you know, commensurate with what folks are interested in.
1: Keep your notebook full
0: of ideas. Oh yeah, I love. I've got two notebooks. One for folkland management. And one for new world cartography. And yeah, the new world cartography has got multiple pages of
1: ideas and harebrained ideas. And <laughs> so, yeah, Do you have a particular place that uh, generates a lot of ideas for maps, or that you enjoy mapping. Not particularly. Um, it
0: really, you know, the the area that we map for a lot of our maps kind of by default defined by the idea. Um, you know, so the Caribbean map, um, might have seen that one. That one, multiple hues of blue and uh, almost, well, it does indeed show the underwater topography. Yeah, that was, I was in the 70s or 80s as underwater, underwater, um, um, like the Alvern and some of those underwater submersibles began to map the um, uh, the underwater topographic features beyond the international line, an international convention was created. And they say, okay, as we map these, this will be the convention that where all of these underwater topographic features, the names are codified, and they've got a really interesting website that has kind of a Google Earth interface, and you can zoom all around and and read the names of these underwater topographic features. So one night, of course, I'm just wasting time online and i run across it i said wow i wanted to do a caribbean map because i love to go to the islands but i really wasn't sure of the angle and then i saw all of these underwater topographic features like tongue of the deep and just a little trench and you know other things like that and i said that the angle you know it's going to show of course show all the islands major cities through the islands but then the other layer of information there is really going to be all of these underwater topographic features. So that really defined kind of the area. Of course, the oyster map, you know, left coast, right coast, you know, that was kind of by definition. So I would say that there's really one area in particular, um, but um, uh, it's really defined by the idea. We'll say we'd, we've we done a lot of coastal areas, so kind of the dendritic nature of our meandering creeks and marsh salt marshes, you know, we're pretty good at it. I want to get better at kind of some of their mountain symbology.
1: That's always one of my challenges to myself. So,
0: <laughs>
1: as a flatlander, trying to learn to to map the steepness.
0: Yeah, I'm a flatlander for sure. Yeah. I remember when I went to Athens, you know, University of Georgia, one well, best friend through at Georgia was from uh, the upcountry in Georgia. And we we're walking across campus and there was a rise of about 30 feet. And I was like, oh, man, this mountain was something. He said, what are you talking about? He's like, this is nothing. I was like, man, you go three
1: inches in the low country. You go from wet to dry. I said, so thirty feet is significant for me. <laughs> Can you think of any cartographers living or dead that people should check out that inspired you or that you liked?
0: I think one that's an interesting story, and actually he was the wartime cartographer that I mentioned earlier, was a guy named Robert Knox Snedden, S N E T. D. N. Have you ever heard of him? No. Let's hear it. P. Uh, let me. Actually, my library. Let me grab these two books that were published. Actually, and as I look through here, there's there's another um, there's another series. I wouldn't say an individual cartographer, but the Library of Congress did a series of books called um, um rare and unusual maps from the Library of Congress, and each one. Was of a particular state. So, Virginia, Mapping the Old Dominion State Through History. And Vincent Berga, B I R G A, was a primary author on all of these. And they did Virginia, Connecticut, California, Illinois, Florida, Texas, Colorado, Massachusetts. They came out over 15, 20 years ago. They're not large books, but they are incredibly, they're great books. And of course, they go through, you know, of individual states maps from early on colonial eras to, um, you know, current time. And it's a great, and you can pick up copies of them pretty easily. Um, so that's a, a great set of books and one that I like. In fact, I bought all of the ones that I could find um, just to have. Um, so that's that's really a good a good set of books. Um, but the other one is, the the story that I've read is this guy, Robert Knox Sneddon. Was uh, a cartographer for the Union And he did wartime cartography I think he was an engineer by training Something like that He was in Andersonville Which is, of course from a bad POW camp in South Georgia And um, that he was known to history But not at a a great level Until at some point uh, The 80s or 90s um, one of his family members found two suitcases in an attic and opened it up, and it was all of these hand-drawn maps of different battles throughout the Civil War. And almost in the vein of Forrest Gump, he um, Robert Knox was at a lot of major battles, um, and of course produced all of these maps. And um, I don't think any or very few of his maps from from the wartime were known to history until this point and the guy walked through walked in the front door of the Virginia Historical Society set the the suitcases down and said hey I found these do you want to buy them once everybody picked their jaws up off the ground they said oh my goodness yes we would like to buy those and they published two books one was called Eye of the Storm which was more biographical about Robert Maxon and then one Images from the Storm which was obviously a map-heavy uh, book, um, almost coffee table size. So you've got good large images, but you can see all of his maps. Um, but it's really a fascinating story, um, uh, and some I'm looking through one. Here is uh, one sketch of the headquarters of General Heitzelman Third Army Corps in the ruins of Hampton, Virginia, March 24, 1862. Uh, another one, uh, and this is an aerial one, plan of Fort Monroe, Old Point Comfort, Virginia. Um, so it's got, you know, you've got all of these different, both landscape sketches as well as maps of of different battles, places during the war. But it's, a, it's really, it's a, it's a great story, and of course, historically, you know, great that these things reemerged some 20 plus years ago, and are now known to history. Robert Knox, K N O X, that S N E D E N. But yeah, it was when I first ran across it, that what in the world? And because uh, you know it's rare nowadays in the 20th or even 21st century that something from another century just pops up, much less two suitcases full of maps and drawings. Um, it's just kind of a cool story, and that luckily they they published these two books, but one biographical and one, you know image heavy, just to show as many of the images as possible.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Travis. This was uh, very interesting, a lot of fun. Learned a lot about your process. I always admired those maps, and now I have a good handle on how they came to be. Uh, Yeah, it's always really nice to see new contemporary cartographers making handmade things, which is rare, as you can see.
0: No, I appreciate that. Yeah, there aren't many of us doing it, but it's, it's something certainly I enjoy doing, and it's a a good creative outlet
1: thank you very much travis and uh, have a wonderful rest of your sunday you too i'll talk to you soon to see folks maps visit newworldcartography.com if you need help taking care of your patch of land near green pond south carolina visit folklandmanagement.com that's f-o-l-k For show notes and bonus content, visit veryexpensivemaps.com. This episode is brought to you by The Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, walls, reports, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate, I'm a cartographer, and you should make your own maps
0: no one wants to see dull ugly maps if you want to get through to your customers you need the best cartography money can buy the map consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding powerpoint decks annual reports conferences and events your office walls the map consultancy does it all visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today